<laughs> we are live on YouTube. Well, we will be in a second. If YouTube sets up pro properly. So it's good to see everyone back for Galatians. Um, I got to adjust my mark, my mark so I know where not to draw. So I'm still figuring out my new webcam. Um, it's better, but I'm still working. I got the color adjusted Friday. Last Friday when I taught, I was blue. So I think this is a little bit better color. Um, but yeah, so we're still figuring it all out. Technology, you know, you got to figure it all out. So um, tonight we are going to work on Galatians 4, um, which is just really a great passage to work on. Um, a lot of good stuff ahead of us. And we will really, it's, it's very parallel to what we did um, last time we met, which was a couple weeks ago now. So it'll, it'll work well to review uh, what we said a couple weeks ago as we move forward in Galatians 4. So hopefully you found Galatians in your Bible by now. Um, it's the same place it was when we left. So Galatians chapter 4, we will study that tonight. I am going to record this on my phone. I don't know why I'm doing this. I always just delete them later. But just in case we need an audio recording, we'll do that. And then we'll pray and then we'll get started. So if you have any questions, just wait till after the prayer. Then you can ask anything you want and we'll talk about it. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we are back together again tonight around your word. And we pray that as usual, you would send your Holy Spirit, that we might have wisdom, that as, he, as your spirit works through this word to strengthen our faith, to confirm us in our faith, and to point us once again to Jesus, that we would read these words according to your holy will for us. And therefore, we would see Jesus, trust in him, and believe that you are a God who loves and forgives and grants us eternal life. So bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so any questions as we move forward? Anything that even wanting to ask that, that you've just been dying till we got back together to ask? Anything for the group? Brian, I got your email. I've been, I'm about 190 emails behind right now, so I'm getting there. I saw it though, so I'm getting there. Sorry, my email is- No problem, no problem. So we'll get there. Um, but any, any questions? That anybody has, they want to ask now. Okay, seeing none, let's read then um, Galatians chapter four. So we finished chapter three last time we were together, basically. Um, so let's read chapter four, verses one through seven. If someone could read that out loud for us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
and if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so probably some familiar language in there. Um, language you've heard either in this passage or in other passages where Paul says very similar things, and even Jesus says some very similar things. So uh, we will spend some time looking at the other ways the scriptures use a very similar language and very similar metaphor for uh, salvation and our relationship to God and also our um, bondage just to sin. So that's kind of what we're going to look at tonight. So as I said, any questions now as you've heard it again, any, any questions that popped in your head, any questions you have for me? Okay. Well, I wrote down a bunch of questions, so we'll go with those. So number one, how were we all enslaved before Christ? We're enslaved to sin. Okay, good. So the first thing is that we're enslaved to sin. Um, and, and this is something we talked about before, but I, we're going to make sure that we understand Paul's language tonight. We're enslaved to sin. Okay. Now, what this means, this might sound obvious, but we need to make sure we say it, is that we are not free. Okay. So this means without Christ, we are not free. Okay. So freedom comes by through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a major teaching of scripture is that faith in Christ sets us free. So freedom is to be in Christ. Okay. And I know that that's basic, but just, we got to kind of remember this. This is a major um, teaching of scripture that we can easily forget is that Freedom is what happens when we're in Christ. To be outside of Christ is to live as slaves, to be enslaved and to be not free. Okay? So what this means is before you are in Christ, you are not free to decide to do the things that can please God. Okay? So this is where this is the idea when I, you've heard me say before that we do, we do not have free will, okay? We don't have free will before we're in Christ. Outside of Christ, our will, our spirit, our whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use for will there. Um, it is enslaved to sin. And if you're enslaved, then you're not free. Okay? So what you want to do is, is you want to be free. We're good Americans. We like to be free. That's all we have to talk about, right? And so freedom is found by being in Christ. And this is what Paul's kind of getting at here, using some different metaphors, but, but still getting the same idea um, and, and that we've heard before. We talked about this a lot last time we were saying Ephesians. If you guys remember our study of Ephesians, it talked about us in Ephesians chapter two, where it says, now, as for you, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, right? In your trespasses and sins. But then by God's grace, you were made alive by Christ. So the idea was that you're, you're born 
dead in sin, you don't do anything to change that situation. God is the one who acts to change that situation. God is the one who makes you alive. And so now in this metaphor, God is the one who sets us free. Okay. Does, does that make sense? You guys, any questions on that or, or any, any clarification you want? Uh, Doctor, I'm sort of wondering about the, the verbiage of elementary principles. I feel like we've talked about it before, but I'm wondering if that's is sort of like a Greek scholastic idea or what, what, is, what is the significance of that particular language? Okay, good. Um, let's see. Where can I rank this? Okay, so the, the elementary <coughs> principles are stoi... I'm trying to remember how you spell it in English, I'll be honest. I'm seeing it in Greek in my head. The stoicheia, okay? The stoicheia. And, and the stoicheia, or the stoicheia, if you're saying English, are, this is how I remember it. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, this is how I remember it. It's a few. There's just a few of them, okay? And it's earth, fire, wind, and air. Those are the stoicheia in Greek philosophy. Those are the four elemental. So the stoicheia are the elemental things you think elements, the basic elements of all things is a stoichia. It's, it's the foundation kind of thing, elemental things. And so in Greek philosophy, it's earth, fire, wind, and air. I remember in a wrong order because I just remember a few. That's the easiest way to remember it for me. But so earth, fire, wind, and air, it's, it's you know, there was a rock band that, that tried to do some of that. Um, I guess, which one did they leave out? They didn't have air right? uh captain if it's captain planet it's part yeah i have no idea anyway um so these are kind of the greek ideas of stoichia but the other idea um that paul's probably also bringing on if if not exclusively greek is he's also going to go back and say the torah or the law of moses is the is the stoichia that it's the elementary things to which we are enslaved before Christ sets us free. So the law of Moses then becomes this enslaving stoicheia. And, and that the issue is we're not entirely certain which one he means. Both fit with the context and both fit with what he says about it. So some people take it to mean these, these elemental uh, Greek ideas, but it's probably best to understand when, when Paul says you're enslaved to them, that you're enslaved to the law of Moses. Now, let me just explain this for one second. I don't want to lose you guys, but just, just so you get it in your heads, what this can mean from a, from a Jewish perspective. The, the rabbis taught that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are actually the foundations of the creation. Okay, so that's why you, you can see the stoicheia idea of actually being the Torah. Okay, so you think of John 1, when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then, so you're, you're kind of, it kind of sounds like the Torah, right? This is very much how they would talk about the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. And then it goes this, and it says, through him, all things were made that have been made, and apart from him, nothing has been made that has been made. Okay, so this is where you kind of see this, this Jewish idea of the word of God, the word of God, which they would say is the Torah, the word of God being the foundation 
of creation, the, the fundamental elements. So that's kind of the issue. And when Paul says you're enslaved to these, found, these fundamental elements, he's either referring to the Greek idea, which is Gentile audience understand, or he's referring to the Torah, which is his uh, Jewish audience would understand. I kind of think he's doing both. I think he's kind of saying, you know, whatever fundamental elements there are, that you're kind of enslaved to, Christ is going to set you free. Okay. And, and that's kind of the thread. Does that make sense, Jeremy? Uh, kind of. So I, I guess sort of splitting the difference, I guess you could say that he's just talking about you are sort of stranded by default in the fundamentals, uh, whether you're trapped in sin, whether you're talking about natural elemental, whether you're talking about even maybe basics of, of human nature, something like mm -hmm. that. I mean, it sounds like it could be yeah. kind of mean any of those ideas. Yeah. So, so the whole idea is that you're going to, you're going to be set free to something better, right? You're going to move on to something better. And this is when Paul and the other New Testament writers used to Ikea in other contexts, it's usually seen as an immaturity issue that you're going to, you're going to move on, right? You're going to move beyond that. Um, and you actually have that immaturity issue here as he talks about being children, um, Napioi, young children in this context. Okay. So you kind of have that idea of moving on from those things. Okay. Is that, does that make sense? So I'm sorry, we didn't really say that very well. What we're talking about in all this is um, when it says mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in verse three in the ESV, it says enslaved to the elementary principles. That's that, those elementary principles is the, is the translation of the Greek word stoicheia. That's what we're talking about. Okay, so that's stoicheia is the is the Greek word behind the English words elementary principles in the ESV, verse three. Okay, good. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, number two. So how did Jesus make us sons instead of slaves? He took our sins upon his shoulders. Yeah, he took our, he took our sins upon his shoulders. Good. That's a metaphor that we use other places. What's Paul going to do here? That's exa You're exactly right. You're exactly right. How did he do that according to... to Galatians 4. Because he was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. Keep under going. The under the law. And born under the law. That's right. So what he did is he became enslaved for us. Okay. He became a slave. He became under the law. Right. Do you see that? He became enslaved to the law. Now this, this is very parallel to chapter 3 when he talked about, um, look at verse 13, in, in Galatians chapter 3, 13, don't forget that, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, this is the same move. You have this idea of Christ being under the law in order to redeem us because we are under the law. And in chapter three, he's going to bring out the idea that, that he, that Christ becomes a curse 
he becomes cursed under the law so that we might be set free from that law. Look, so in verse five, we again have Jesus being under law in order to redeem us from the law. So same movement, okay? And this whole idea, which is exactly what Craig said as well, is I've already messed up the whole board. How does that happen? We just got started. I need a bigger board or something or less scribble. I don't know which one. But anyway, um, this whole idea that that um, he did this for us, all that kind of stuff. This is what we mean by vicarious atonement. Okay, remember, vicarious simply means to do something in the place of someone else. You might hear this in a negative way when people say, oh, you're trying to live vicariously through that person, right? You've heard of that maybe, um, you know, a dad who's, who's no longer in shape like he used to be in high school. Some of us are no longer that age, you know, when we used to be, yeah, well, I never was that anyway, but, but back when I was young enough that I could have been maybe, um, you kind of think, well, I was, I was the, the man's man. And then you have a son and you try to live vicariously through him. Right. And, and you kind of make him do what you wish you could do that kind of stuff. We hear that as like a vicar. Yeah. And good. So then we get the word vicar from that. And, and the idea is a vicarious is to simply do something in the place of someone else. Okay. So you have a, your vicar is kind of, I don't know why they're called vicars. It, it kind of freaks me out. Or I guess they're in a place of a pastor, um, but vicarious atonement means that Jesus took our place and atoned for our sins so he died the death that we were to die to pay for our sins and but don't stop there he rose from the dead which gives us resurrection okay so it's it's a complete package it's not just the death on the cross it's also that because he lives because he lives then we live okay and here's the thing when jesus dies again then you'll have to die again so when is jesus going to die again never never he lives and reigns to all eternity right that means when we are resurrected with christ then we will live how long forever see that's the promise do you get it so he takes our sins on himself so he he becomes what does it say in galatians 4 he, he's under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law sinners who right who are under the law enslaved to sin he becomes under the law to redeem those under the law and then what does he do he gives them adoption as sons well a son then gets an inheritance. That's I'm probably spoiling the next question. I always do that. I'm a terrible teacher. I'm always spoiling the next. Oh, I didn't ask. That's good. Okay, so because we become sons, then we get the inheritance. Okay, and remember, this is the big deal with the son language in the New Testament. It's not saying that women are excluded or that daughters aren't any good. It's simply all about inheritance, okay? So Jesus was obviously physically a male. He was the son and he was the son of God. 
Um, but when it says that we have all been made sons, what that means is that we have all been given the right to the inheritance that Jesus earned through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned, Doctor, the perfect life, because I was just going to, if you if you hadn't, I don't think it came up in any of that that previous uh, discussion. Uh, it, it seems to me that from that text, it is referring kind of specifically to the perfect life, uh, not just that not just that he was enfleshed as a human, but that he was a perfect sacrifice. You know, not just that he died as a mediocre sacrifice and and, and that sort of thing, but rather that he lived the perfect life as Israel boiled down to one person, as all of humanity boiled down to one person. Um, it, it seems to me that it's kind of directly referencing that particular part of his, his yeah, life. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So um, I'm a very, very Christocentric in a, in a cruciform way when I do my theology. And, and one of the weaknesses that sometimes I might forget to mention other things, but, but whenever we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, we remember that that he part of his vicarious atonement is that he 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 perfectly perfectly uh, there's a lot of extra L's in there he perfectly kept the law okay so he lived perfectly and 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 for any of you who have ever been a teenager this is just almost impossible to comprehend right. I mean, Jesus never sinned. He always and only did the will of God. So when he died on the cross, he didn't die just as an innocent man, like he didn't break any Roman laws or just as an innocent man, meaning he didn't really break any of the, of the Pharisaic laws. No, he literally died innocent, even in God's eyes. He never sinned, even in his thoughts. This is the guy who stood up in, in Matthew chapter five and said, you think you got this thing, this law thing licked? Well, listen to this, right? I got news for you. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And you all go, well, I've never killed anyone. That's easy. He goes, but I say to you, have you ever had any hatred in your heart? Have you even spoken ill of a brother? You're guilty, right? And, and he just... And what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he actually says the law is not just the outward keeping of these commandments. It's actually, it's our thoughts, it's our words and our actions and that we are guilty in all of those. So when we say he lived the perfect life, that means he never sinned in thought, word or deed, which, you know, that's, that's, he's God, right? It's the only way to explain that is that he, he is actually born without original sin and he never sins. So then when he, when he dies on the cross, he has perfectly kept the law in our stead. He dies in our place and he gives us his resurrection. So it's all complete in Christ. Okay. Any questions or thoughts on that? Very good. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, so why was Jesus born when he was? Well, I'd like to say because, but I think what you're looking for is God chose that time to reveal Christ as we knew him in the Old Testament 
so that the full glory of Christ could be revealed when he died on the cross. Yeah, so so that's exactly right. So somehow what Paul is getting at is this is the this is the fullness of time. This is exactly when God brought all of this to this point and he sent his son. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a chance. This is actually the design, okay? And and what this what this means is, you know, when we celebrate Christmas, a lot of people say, "Oh, it's it's just a pagan holiday that you made Christian and you know whatever, whatever." And we say, "No, no, no, you're not getting it. You're not. It's not about December 25th. It's about the fact that God worked all of history before Christ to get us to that point, and then Christ came, and now everything after Christ is." looking back to that time as the fullness of time and we live and we move and we have our being because in the fullness of time god sent his son to be born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and that time now defines all of our time it literally does right now scholars have tried to get rid of it but it literally defines our time we say well, before Christ, there was that time. And then after everything after that is the year of the Lord. <laughs> That's what it is. And so we still live in this year of the Lord time, right? This is this is the Lord's year. And for those of us, and I don't know if all of you noticed this, but we had this little 2020 issue. I don't know if you noticed. Is masking and pandemics and vaccines and whatever, right? And you say, oh, what a terrible year. And we say, no, 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 no. It was rough for us, but we trust that this is still the Lord's year, right? God is not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He's not. As a matter of fact, he sent his son to redeem us, including for this year. And so what happens is when we understand Galatians 4, 4, and 5 to talk about Christ coming as in the fullness of time, we actually learn to see all of our days in God's sending of his son. That's who we are. That's how we live. Now, now listen to, listen to your own prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And God says, I always will. I always will. I will give to you a physical body, but I also will provide for you the very bread of life in Christ himself. Okay? So, so we actually trust this, that this is the fullness of time. Now, the other thing this does, I want to show you guys this. Let's, let's just look in Galatians real quick. So get your Bibles, and we're just going to stay in the book of Galatians for a couple seconds, and then we'll go elsewhere. But, but just in the book of Galatians, go to the first chapter. So Galatians chapter 1. Okay, Galatians chapter 1, and it's verse 4. Okay, Galatians 1, verse 4. So the very first chapter of Galatians, the first, the, actually the introduction to the book, we're not even into the actual part of the book yet, he's just saying hi still. And he says in chapter 1, verse 4 of Galatians, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Okay, so we're, gonna, we're talking time. Something's going to happen now. Christ came to deliver us from the present evil age, okay? Then you read all of Galatians, you get to chapter 6, which is the last chapter of Galatians. So go to the end of the book. Chapter 6, there's not a whole lot in chapter 6, right? We'll go fast that week. But, but look at verse 15. 
Okay, so we started the book by this present evil age, but now look at verse chapter 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. That sounds familiar last week, doesn't it? Or two weeks ago, right? When you said there's not Jew or Greek or slave or free, all that kind of stuff. So neither circumcision accounts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay, so we started in this present evil age, and then we got Christ. And now we are transported to the new creation. And that's who we are. We are part of the new creation. Okay. And, and the verse that you guys know off the top of your head when you hear these words is you guys are all thinking 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this one's easy to find because 2 Corinthians happens in the book right before Galatians. So just go back one book. Right before Galatians, you get 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is one of the, the most famous chapters in Paul's writing, at least in his Corinthian correspondence. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And it says, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, right before Galatians, says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, see, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, okay? So, so this, this coming of Jesus in the fullness of time, it's, it is the completion of everything that led up to Christ, but it also then becomes the defining thing for everything after Christ. And all of us who are in Christ, who are baptized into Christ, who have faith in Christ, who believe in Christ, we are a new creation. Our sins are forgiven, right? We were enslaved to sin, but our sins are forgiven. And remember, the, the wages of sin is death. So when our sins are forgiven, not only are we not guilty before God, but we're actually, we're actually also forgiven and removed from the penalty of death. So we're actually given life. Okay. So this new creation now is a new creation of life. And, and this is our hope in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. And this is how we live in Christ. We live in this reality of life. Okay. Any questions? There's, there's several more verses, but, but any other questions before I get too far down that road? Thoughts or comments? Yeah, that, that kind of goes against everything that we as Americans like to uh, like to think of ourselves. We think like to think of ourselves as uh, as uh, free people, but uh, the Bible's like, no, you're slaves. Yeah, you're slaves who need to be set free. That's exactly right. And this is why it's very hard sometimes to be um, to, to read the scriptures with an American lens because it, it, they really do, um, they make it hard to, to understand both worldviews, to be honest. It's really hard. Um, the Bible is very clear that we are not born free. We are born enslaved and that it's God's grace that sets us free. That's right. Good. Any other questions, thoughts?
Uh, sure, I'll try something. Mm-hmm. Um, I've grown up a lot with the word sin, mm-hmm. and like I understand that the Bible does focus a lot, and the Lutherans believe a lot about justification, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's like the central doctrine and stuff. And yep. I was talking with someone in my family recently, and that person came back a lot to the idea that we're all sinners and using sin to explain a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, there's other like ways to think of it too, besides sin, because sin can, I don't know, just thinking about sin can be a lot for mm-hmm. some people, including myself. And mm-hmm. I read a book by someone in the Jesus seminar, I think, mm-hmm. who brought up, you know, the other exile narrative, like besides the sin and justification in the courtroom narrative of the Bible, there was another Not narrative. But there was like, you know what I mean? There was like an exile. Yeah. The, the people, you know, and I know you can say it's because of sin that there was exile, but like the exile in Egypt or the wandering in the desert and that Jesus is coming to like save us from the exile. So what do you think of that framing? Yeah. So, so I think it's Dominic Crossan is the, is a scholar that you read. Um, could be yeah i think it is he's the one that that works on that a little bit uh the, the new guy and i've i've told you to read his work as well but nt Wright also yeah. picks up on the on mm-hmm. the exile and the new exile issue um and this is certainly a pervasive metaphor um remember in the history of the old testament like isaiah jeremiah ezekiel daniel all those guys they're about the exile so the exile is a huge issue in the old testament where the people of god were actually kicked out of the promised land right? The Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south. So, so this, this is a major point in the history of Israel um, where they're still kind of waiting to get back to the promised land. So, so one of the metaphors you want to look at is when we talk about salvation, one of the ways to talk about it is the return from exile. Now, the problem with all these scholars that they have to work with is that that's not actually a metaphor that's used in the New Testament. You'd think it might be, but it isn't. The New Testament just doesn't use it. It's not one that the New Testament talks about. You're going to have a hard time finding any passage in the New Testament talk about a return from exile. It just isn't, it's not a prominent feature of the New Testament. It certainly is a prominent feature of the history of Israel, but it's not a prominent teaching in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament really does focus on sin. And remember, the word sin simply means to do anything that is contrary to the will of God. It's just to do something, or and again, do means think, say, speak feel, whatever, things that are contrary to the will of God. So to live contrary or against God's will. Okay. So um, if you want to look at like an exile metaphor, it's God's will that we live where he is, that he lives where we are. And so when we're separated from him, that's actually contrary to his will. And that's, that's sinning, right? So yeah, you can use that metaphor if you want. And again, like you said, the, the prophets make it very clear that the reason that ex- that Israel went into exile was because of sin. Okay. And you brought the desert wanderings. Well, the de- they wandered the desert for 40 years because they went to the promised land like God told them. And they, they told God he was wrong. God's like, here's your promised land. I gave it to you. And they went, no, no, no. There are giants in the land. We're scared. And God went, what, what don't you understand about? I'm going to give you the land. I'm God. I can do these things. And they're like, no, no, we're scared. So they actually sinned. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust in God. They trusted themselves instead. So they actually sinned 
and that was the cause of the exiles. So yeah, sin is sin is kind of the most prominent word that the New Testament uses to talk about these things. It's not the only one we can use, but it's kind of been the, become the generic idea of anything that's contrary to the will of God. Remember, um, in the Old Testament, you really have four major words that all talk about sin, and the New Testament kind of smushes them all together into sin. So you have iniquity and transgression and rebellion and those those kind of words. Okay. So, so those are all kind of smushing the idea of sin. And I know that, that um, sin can become kind of a boogaboo for some people. But remember, it's, it's really the idea that we are created to be in the image of God. We are created to be God's children and to live according to his will because that is the will of the creator for his creation. And we, we, have, we have failed in that. We have failed... Uh, we were born in sin. We, we were born outside the image of God because of the sin we inherited, but we also live contrary to God's will. And that removes us from the image of God and from the way we were created. And so um, the whole point of Christ is, is to forgive that sin and then get us back to being created in the image of God um, through his image as the image of God. Okay. So, so that's really what you want to think about. Does that help at all, Tom? Does that, uh, yeah, it's a good start. I'll think about yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah, think about it. Let me know. That's a good question. That's a very good question. We, we Tom, you and I should talk sometime about the exile metaphor. That, that'd be a fun. Oh, yeah, sure. It'd be a fun discussion to have. Okay, good. Any other questions on that? Kevin, it seems yep. that we humans are stuck on time. You know, we, we want a definition of why was it the fullness of time? Why did he choose right. that time? If I had been alive at that time, I, you know, they'd gone through a lot of suffering and things. And I think now humans are still doing the same thing. They're saying, why are we going through all this suffering? Why doesn't right. Christ come again? Right. So we're, we're really stuck in, in thinking in terms of time. Yeah, we are. And that, that's very well said. Um, and, and, all y'all sinners are, are stuck on time, but I'm not. As long as God lives by my time, right? As long as he answers my prayer when I think he should and how I, you know, and all of a sudden realize that all of us live in this reality in which we're measuring God's faithfulness by his timely response or this, or if things work out in a certain time. And, and I just, this is one of the things that I say personally that, that always helps me to remember is that if you just look at the Old Testament, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to read the whole thing, but you guys ever heard of the book of Judges? You ever heard of that book? A lot of you don't read it because it's kind of weird. And I understand that. But just, just remember this. The period of, the t of time in the book of Judges is longer than the history of America. And usually we just skip that. We kind of just go from Joshua to the kings, you know, whatever. And that whole period is over 350 years. We haven't been a nation that long yet. So you think about, oh, we're really suffering for a long, oh, come on now, right? I mean, come on. Um, so, so part of it is, is perspective. And, and um, I, was, I was blessed to, to grow up in part of my life in Europe and, and get to go back there. And again, you walk around Europe and you see a, you see a building from 1106, right? <laughs> and you think, America, we don't even know what time is. <laughs> we're still babies. So, so yeah, a lot of it is our perspective, right? We just get stuck in this, oh, it's been so bad. And I get that. It is bad. When you're suffering, time kind of crawls. It's rough. You know, time flies when you're having fun. 
but but time is, is a little rough for us sometimes and that's right we're always that's just kind of part of our being a creature is we're kind of bound by this now i want you to turn with me because we did this when we first started this bible study a year ago almost go to first john that was a book we actually started all this with so go to first john way in the back of the, of the new testament way in the back of the new testament first john chapter three Okay, 1 John chapter 3. Do you guys know this passage? We've, we've read this several times. We're getting it drilled in our heads here. So 1 John chapter 3. 1 John is way to the end of the, of the New Testament, not the Gospel of John. That's the beginning of the, of the New Testament, but first epistle of John towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, and it says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Notice the same same idea there, right? Sons of God, children of God. That we should call children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, they did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Listen to this. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself in him. So what happens is this new creation is actually then the promise of the second coming. Okay. And we live in the now. We now live in the partial. Now, just, just stick with me on this. We live now in the partial fulfillment of all of God's promises to us in Christ. Are your sins forgiven? Yes. Are you sinless? No. Okay. So that's the that's the deal with the now, right? Are you guys going to live forever? Yes. Are we probably going to have to do a funeral for you guys one of these days? Yes. Okay. So that's the now. We've got a partial fulfillment of all the stuff that Christ did. Your sins are forgiven, but you're still a sinner. You have eternal life, but you're still going to die, right? We, we know God, but not perfectly, right? We have the revelation of God in his word and in his sacraments, but, but we don't quite get it yet, right? We're not seeing him face to face. There, there's a, we, we got part of it, but not yet, okay? You think about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you guys know this one, where Paul says, now we see as in a glass dimly, right? And remember, that's a mirror without with, without being polished. So it's kind of hard to see. You're not quite, it's like look through a window that hasn't been cleaned, right? It's kind of just hard to see. That's the now, but there's a not yet, okay? And the not yet is the second coming, Okay. So we also live in the hope of what has not yet happened, which is the second coming. Because when Christ comes back, when he returns, he will raise us up in all believers and give us to us eternal life. And what that means is at that moment, your sins will be forgiven and you will never sin again. And you will not ever die, right? No more sickness, no more dying, no more pain. You won't be hungry, you won't be thirsty, even though there'll be a banqueting table, which I don't understand that, but... They're going to banqueting table, but I'm never hungry or thirsty. So there you go. And, and for those of us who get sunburned, the best verse in the whole Bible is nor any scorching heat. So 
it's going to be always sunny, but I won't ever get sunburned, which for me is a good thing because I love being warm, but I get sunburned if I see a picture of the sun. So the, the promise that it's going to be sunny without a sunburn, yeah, that's just, that's awesome. So, so this is whole idea is that when we talk about Christ in the fullness of time, yes, it's about his coming in the flesh at Christmas, but it also is reminding us that now we live in the time of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We live in it now and we're always joining with the church of all times and looking forward to the day of his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like you said, we're suffering now. Please bring an end to it. Please. We can barely take it anymore. Jesus even says, if, if those times weren't cut short, even the elect would fall away. That's how rough some of these times are going to be for us. And it's, it's only by faith in Christ Jesus that we endure. And remember, that faith that, that we have in Christ Jesus is given to us by the Spirit. And that's what Paul's going to say next, right? And I think Susan alluded to that in a chat comment there, that, that we're going to get into the triune God, how the whole triune God is involved in this. That's exactly right. Okay? I know it was a lot of rambling. There's a lot more passages, but we're running out of time. So any questions on that idea of now, not yet, the fullness of time, new creation, second coming? Just in case you were wondering, it's called proleptic eschatology. That's what we just learned. That's what we just discussed. Proleptic eschatology. So, hey, Kevin. Tomorrow, when someone says, how was your day? You say, we discussed proleptic eschatology. Go ahead. Can I, can I go back to the topic of time for a minute? Yeah. That your mom brought up. <clears throat> You know, I, I've often heard various people say, well, God didn't do, didn't answer my prayer on my timeline. You could probably infer. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a lot of that. And mm -hmm. is that, is that kind of putting the Lord to the test? If you say, God, I, I want you to do this on my timeline. If you don't, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. Yeah. So, so I think that the danger, so, so prayer is always, is always, uh, there's two things to keep in mind. I say that there's probably more than two, but there's at least two things to keep in mind. When you pray. The first thing is that you're invited to pray and you're invited to say anything. There, there's no limits on your prayers. You're welcome to say to God, whatever's on your mind. Okay. Even if it doesn't seem appropriate, you're allowed to say it because guess what? He already knows. He knows what you're thinking. So he says, just come tell me. Just, just come, whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your mind, whatever you're anxious about, just ask God. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that because you've said it doesn't then make him obligated to change based on what you think he ought to be doing. He's not looking to you for advice on how to move forward as a divine being. So you say, dear God, I'm really concerned about this. That doesn't mean that he has to all of a sudden be really concerned about that. And this is the problem with prayers. We think because I prayed it, now God is under compulsion to act. Well, he's not. So the other part of prayer that we remember is we, we pray and we, we believe the invitation. We can say whatever we want to a God in prayer. He loves you like a father, a, a tender father loves his child. Please come to me. Please ask, tell me everything's on your mind. Ask me anything. That's what he says. And then we look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we learn from him to pray. I've said everything I want. If Father, please, 
if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And part of faith is actually trusting that God's will is best. And that's the hard part of faith. It's easy to have the faith saying, I can go to God, he'll do whatever I ask, and therefore I'll just say whatever, and he's got to deal with it. No, but the, the hard part of faith sometimes is to pray for something that I fervently want, like really, really want, it matters. And then to also at the same time believe that God's will is best. And his will might be very different than mine. And that doesn't change the fact that he's still God, that he still loves, and that I am still his child, and that I trust that he knows what he's doing and that it's best. So, so you kind of want to pray both those ideas. You want to pray with anything and everything, anytime, but also trusting that he is God and you are not, and that your prayer does not compel him to act. I always say to prayer, I always say to people that that prayer is not your opportunity to review God's job performance. You don't pray and say, God, you've really messed it all up. Just letting you know, you were supposed to take care of this and that and the other thing. And he's going, well, I'm glad you prayed because I had no idea what I was doing up here. I'm just eternally God and, you know, omniscient. I just know all things, you know, but, but I'm glad you showed up to tell me what's up. And so that's the point is we, is we pray in faith, not in arrogance. And, and I, I think that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. You pray with the faith of a child that God has invited you to pray. So please do, but you also pray with the knowledge that, that he's the almighty and that, and that his will is best. So we trust, we just trust that well, which isn't always easy. So this is why the Lord's prayer is the best prayer to pray because it teaches you to continue to focus on God, his will, and his action, less on my desires and more on what he's doing. Okay, does that help, Scott? Thank you. Cool. All right, now I wanna to get to this Trinitarian thing because uh, Susan brought it up and I think it's crazy cool, so I think I wanna do it. So number four, how does our salvation involve the Trinity? So let's just look at Galatians chapter four. I'm in First John still, so go back to Galatians. Right. I like first John. We could do that too, but we already did that. So it's Galatians chapter four. Look at verse six. I mean, it's just all there. It's crazy. And because you are sons, now listen to this. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you see that? Um, one scholar actually said, that Galatians 4 verses 4 through 6 are the, the most important Trinitarian passage of the New Testament. That a lot of people go to Matthew 28 with the institution of holy baptism, with baptizing in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the, as the place where the Trinity is most explicit. But this is one of those places where it's, it's right here in the text, and it's, it's very explicit. Um, you have lots of, of things where God sent forth his Son, so that's definitely the Father, Right, born of the law, reading those on the law, and then because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. So now we have the Holy Spirit of you know that of Jesus, which is an interesting idea. Um, and then because of that, we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's a very Trinitarian idea. Um, and as we've we've said before, we, we want to make sure when we talk about this stuff 
that the, the persons of the Trinity, remember there's, there's one God, three persons, you don't divide, you don't divide the essence and you don't confuse the persons. So the persons, the father sent the son and the father and the son send the spirit. Okay. And that's kind of why they're listed in that order. Okay. Father, son, and Holy spirit. Um, so what you have here is very explicitly then then in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of one born of the law. And then later it says that God, in verse 6, it says, then God has sent his, the spirit of his son into us. Right? And the result of, of all, do you see what God's doing? God's doing all the sending. We're not doing nothing. God's sending, God's sending, God's sending. And he gives it to us. And then the result is that we call God Father just like Jesus calls God Father. Okay, so this is the completion of Paul's whole idea then, is because the, the Father sent his Son, and the Spirit of the Son is given to us, then we get to call God the same name that Jesus calls God, which is Father. Okay, and all of this happens by the power of the Holy Spirit which is crazy cool. Okay, does that make any sense or any questions on that or thoughts? So the other cool things that, that Paul does here is in, in verse 6, at the very end there, he says, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, this is the, is the Hebrew, or actually it's Aramaic. In, in, in actuality, it's Aramaic. You could probably tell that. Remember, it goes that way. Hebrew and Aramaic go that way. Okay? So this is A-B-A, -A, um, Abba. It, the B is more of a V sound than a B sound in reality. So, Ava. So this is Aramaic for, for father. And then this is Greek, pater. And it goes that way. So this is Greek for father. Now, what's, what's going on here is that, that Paul is writing this letter. Remember, the whole idea is, is Jew and Gentile. So what is he saying? that those who are in Christ, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, we're united in Christ, and therefore we all call God our Father, okay? And this kind of brings it all together that we are adopted as sons into God's family, whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're slave or free, whether you're male or female, we're all united in Christ, and we all call the same God our Father, okay? Whether you're saying it in Aramaic, Ava, or whether you're saying Greek, Pater, or whether you're saying in English, our Father, right? It didn't matter. All, all united in Christ Jesus because of his death and resurrection. We all call on God in Christ all together.
Okay. And that's by the spirit. That's just kind of a cool thing to, to look at there. All right. Anything else? Any other questions or thoughts on that? I know someone has a question on that. All right, I won't I won't do an altar call or anything here because they'll just wait till someone decides to get up if you don't. Yeah. All right, we won't do that. So number five. So then what do we inherit? So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, verse seven. So what do we get? Freedom. What's that? Freedom. Freedom. Good. We get freedom. We're no longer enslaved to sin. So we're free. What are we freed to do? Go sin. Don't sin. Don't sin anymore. That's we're freed from sinning. So what do you do since you're not sinning? Since you're not busy sinning all the time, what do you do? Serve God and neighbor. Yeah, you love God and you love neighbor. That's exactly right. So so we're set free in order to love God and love neighbor. Okay? And here's the cool thing. We are set free to be perfectly obedient to God. Well, you guys remember this, and this, this freaks some of you out. In 1 John, it said, if you're a child of God, you're not sinning anymore, right? Because children of God don't sin. And we went, whoa, that doesn't sound right. Well, this is the whole point. Paul's saying the same thing. So you've been set free from sin. So now you don't have to sin anymore. You get to serve God. You get to love God and love neighbor. And you got to go, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But here's the thing. You've heard me say this before, but, but I'll say it again. There will be a day when you will always and only do the will of God. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for a year on end. You will always and only do the will of God. And do you know what you call that? Paradise. Yes. Heaven. Bliss. So here's the suggestion. Start now. Make it your goal to always and only do the will of God. Because that's bliss. It's bliss for you and it's bliss for everybody around you. Because that's how we love perfectly. We love according to the will of God. Okay. Now we've also that sounds like a lot of law. It sounds a lot of pressure on us, but we've been set free from sin to live that way. But we've also been set free from the fear of sin and death and the devil. You don't be scared of it anymore. Someone walks up to you and says, hey, you're a sinner. And you go, yeah, but look what God has done about my sin, right? Look what God has done about my sin. Sin doesn't define me anymore because my sins have been forgiven. So if I'm a sinner, if I caught in sin, what do I do? I, I repent. I say, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And I run right to Jesus. And I say, I'm counting on your death and resurrection to forgive my sins. And he always says, you're forgiven. Always. Anybody who is in Christ, whenever you sin, he says, you are forgiven. No questions asked. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. You get God's perfect and full and total love because of what Christ has done. He set you free from sin, free from death, 
and now you inherit exactly what Jesus gets. Remember we talked about this? You get what Jesus gets, and you get to inherit eternal life. And Peter, are you still on here? Because um, it's a big, big house. Yes, I'm here. It's a big, big house. With lots and lots of rooms. Are we Thank playing you. football now? Yeah, we're going to play football. So, so the whole idea is that um, one, of the, one of the images in, in Scripture is that when Jesus comes a second time, he will actually give to us the kingdom of his father, right? Which was prepared for all times. So one of the things that we talk about in, in inheritance is also actually going to heaven, whatever that means in your, in your idea, but, but, but spending eternity where God dwells with us and there's no sickness and death and the world is in the, in the new creation. Okay. So that's also inherit. It's not just inheriting stuff now. There's also inheriting stuff later at Christ's second coming. Okay. So that's what all that kind of means in those seven verses. Like I said, it's a really strong, we didn't even look at all the parallels, but just a really strong passage. Um, if you're, if you're wondering what else to look at with this, when you think about sin and slavery and sonship, go to John chapter eight, the gospel of John chapter eight. That's where you'll read. Um, if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's, that's the passage. Um, you shall know the truth and truth shall set you free. That's all in John chapter eight, where Jesus uses a very similar metaphor. I think Paul might've gotten this from Jesus, um, but it's very prominent there. And then also we didn't have a chance to do this. Maybe we'll do this next week, but, but also just in case you wanted to look at that, go to Romans chapter eight. And I think it's in the teens somewhere. I'm thinking like 12 or 13 ish. Um, but you have a lot of the same language with, with spirit and sons. And even there you have Abba again. Okay, so a lot of parallels there with Romans chapter eight. So look that up, read that. That's a lot of fun. Hey, here's the thing. I forgot to announce at the beginning of class, but tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. So get you to a church, get you some ashes on your forehead to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified, right? To say, I'm a sinner. Yep. But my sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. That's what those ashes mean. They mean, yes, I'm a sinner but my sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. So you can go to Ash Wednesday service if you got a church nearby that does that. Um, but remember, this begins Lent. We go from now until Easter. And I really encourage you, um, if you want to give something up, that's cool. That's fine. No problem with that. But what I really encourage you to do is during Lent, add something. Add some time in the scripture to your daily life. Say in this 40 days, I'm going to spend an extra time every day in the scripture. I'm going to pray the Lord's prayer. I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to set time aside during this time of Lent to, to spend time in God's word. Okay. So I really encourage you to do that. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of things on the, in the internet. You can find um, reading through the gospels in 40 days, read the whole new Testament in 40 days, a little tougher, um, but, but maybe a reading plan or maybe you just pick up, say, I'm going to read the gospel of John or I'm going to gospel of Mark and just, just read. So, I encourage you to do that during this time of Lent. It's a special time in the church here when we, we repent of our sins and we, we focus on Christ and we, we kind of spend special time dedicating ourselves to that. So I encourage you to do that. Okay. I'm going to pray so that people can go if they have to. And then if you have any questions, I can stick around for a bit. So let's, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to death, enslaved to this world. 
And yet in your mercy and your grace, you sent your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And now we live in him because of your grace. We thank you that our sins are forgiven, that death has been conquered, that Satan is powerless against us because we are your children and that we receive the very inheritance that our savior Jesus Christ won for us. Dear Lord, it's still tough in these days. It's tough for us. It's hard to keep faith. It's hard to keep focused. It's hard to even trust in you. So we pray that, that same spirit that Paul talked about would be sent to us, that he might come into our hearts to continue to give us faith in our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank if you. If you have any questions, I'm here. I can sit around for a bit. Thanks, Kevin. Thank Thanks. you, Kevin. Thank you, Thanks. Kevin. You all have a blessed week. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I do have a question, Kevin. Okay. What's up, Greg? I've been reading Acts. Oh, good. Um, I'm in, uh, I think Acts 11. But anyway, in Acts 8, verse 39, it talks about Philip kind of disappearing and then reappearing again. Um, <laughs> it picks him up and moves him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So my question really, I mean, Jesus obviously did miracles. 